it's um, it's, just, it's especially uh, wonderful to be here tonight because we've been following this church plan since the very beginning. Uh, and when I heard that Charles was coming and there's going to be an RUF startup at the U of A, uh, Aaron and I were at the U of A from 95 to 98. And it, those were some of the, really the best uh, days of our lives. We had a very serendipitous experience. We sat down next to each other at a campus Christian organization like First week of school, I mean, fell in love like the first week of school, <laughs> dated all the way through high, uh, through college, um, had great Christian friends. We were here in 97 when we won the national championship. It, yeah, so I just, we had such fondness for Tucson, and um, you know, I followed Charles and listened to his preaching all of these years. I think, I mean, the truth is I probably have quoted him from the pulpit, like, as much, not quite as much as Tim Keller, but like, <laughs> nearly that much. So, um, now, I mean, just sincerely thank you for having us tonight. We are looking at the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. The only thing the first disciples of Jesus were ever recorded to have asked Jesus to teach them was, Lord, you know, teach us to pray. There's no record of anyone asking Jesus to teach them leadership or counseling or you know, healing lessons or even preaching lessons. While we can imagine they probably asked to learn um, in those ways, nevertheless, it's not recorded for us in the Bible. Um, it, it had to do with his prayers. You know, I almost wish we could go back and see, like, read a compilation of first century rabbinic prayers to kind of hear what they were like and then to contrast Jesus' prayers. I mean, Jesus you know, came from, from eternally from the Father, and there had to be then this... Can you imagine the, the love and the familiarity that would be characterized as he was talking to his father? Um, you know, his preaching was characterized by authority. His prayers had to, I mean, what? It had to be characterized by like, such sheer um, love. Um, and that's why they wanted to learn more um, about it. The sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer was, interestingly, in the news a few years back, Pope, Pope uh, Francis officially approved a change to this petition of the Lord's Prayer. He replaced, lead us not into temptation with the words, do not let us fall into temptation. And according to the Vatican News Service, uh, the change followed 16 years of research done by experts who found a mistake in the current translation, quote, they said from a theological, pastoral, and stylistic viewpoint. After the change was made, the, I think it was like the Italian news went to the Pope and, and asked him, like, what's your reason for doing this? I mean, this is the Lord's Prayer. It's been the same way for generation to generation, right? And Francis replied that he thought that the traditional translation of the Lord's Prayer portrayed God in a false light. He went on to say, and I think we can, we can definitely relate to what he went on to say. He said, I am the one that falls. It's not God pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. And on one level, I totally get it. And maybe you have thought this too. Like, I've, I've thought that that petition is a little strange. Like, lead us not into temptation. I mean, that's not what a, a good father does. A good father doesn't take their kid into like an X-rated movie to see... You know, how they perform. Has anybody else wondered about, about why Jesus has us pray in that way? Um, 
You know, Satan's the one that, that tempts us. And so I have at times been confused why we were instructed to pray this way. But with all due respect to the Pope, and I, I do mean that, I mean, who am I, who am I to disagree with the Pope? But I think that they made a mistake in changing the translation. And when we dig a little deeper, I think we find not only something um, remarkable about God here, but also something remarkable about the last two years that we have gone through. So let's read it together one more time. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first petition. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Second petition. Your will be done. Third petition. On earth as it is in heaven. Now something, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, nowadays, uh, what I do more frequently than not, that last on earth as it is in heaven, most likely modifies all three of the previous petitions. So when we say, Our Father, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're saying. The hallowed is one of those like archaic words, but you know, hallowed, to be, to be praised and to treat it as holy and beautiful and right. That's happening right now in heaven, isn't it? And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, it will be treated on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the, the kingdom is, the sun is on the throne in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I will actually pray each of those, the modifier after each line. Give us this day our daily bread, petition four, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, petition five. And lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then the, you, you probably notice in your Bibles, the traditional ending to the Lord's Prayer is not included in most of our modern translations, only simply because, though it says something undeniably true, it's not in like some of the earliest manuscripts. And so that's why it's not there, although it is in some of the manuscripts. Shall we pray real quickly? Father, we love your word, and we want to hear... Uh, we want to hear from you now, so please speak to us. Give us uh, fruitful soil, like uh, soul that, that can be, uh, so, souls that can be planted into, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Greek word here for temptation has a little bit of fudge factor built into it. The, this word gets translated variously in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated, as it is here, temptation. Other times... It's translated testings, and then sometimes it's translated as trials. Temptations, testings, trials. All those three words are closely related, obviously. The word for lead us, it does have a lot of fudge factor built in. It's pretty clear from the verb tense that it means just that, to like lead us or to bring us, rather than what the Vatican decided on, uh, rather than do not allow us to fall. As one Greek scholar said in reply to the whole controversy, and this is the very wonkish statement I'm about to read to you, but he says that we cannot go from an active verb, subject, subjunctive mood, aorist tense, second person singular, with a clear direct object, to a wholly different verb, completed by an infinitive that is nowhere in the text that is the infinitive to fall. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> what that means is basically... When you look at the Greek, like the, the, the Greek doesn't warrant a change to the text. The reason you would change the text is simply because you don't like 
You don't like the theology of what the text says. And I think that they made a mistake because this is a theology that's like everywhere in the Bible. Let me ask you, does the God who is depicted in the Bible ever lead people into terrible testings and trials? Does he actually like actively lead people into testing and trials? Yes? Like, yes, many times? Like, yes, all the time? Um, that's a, a, such a characteristic feature of the, the narrative of Scripture. Genesis 22, Abraham is tested by God to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And the very word there used for tested in Genesis 22 is the same word that's used here in Matthew 6.13. At least that word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says, and God tested Abraham. Did Abraham pass that test? He did, uh, but barely. And it, it almost killed them. Another classic example, we read about it already, Job, right? You know, God allows Satan access to Job to test him, to try him, to bring him through a series of like, calamities. Um, God clearly led him there, and Job's faith almost broke. But he didn't, he passed the test, and, it, and you know, he was stronger at, at the end of it. But the very best example of this is taken actually from the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, rather. Matthew chapter 4. The best example of God leading someone into temptation. We read these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, what Jesus is telling us to pray is the very thing that ended up happening to him. No, God does not tempt anyone. Satan tempts people, but God does lead us into places, into like horrible places sometimes, like the place we have been for the last few years, where um, temptations abound. Do they not? You know, 2021 felt, uh, felt like one great wilderness of trial. I think I read that... Uh, 866,000 Americans will have died of COVID as of like yesterday. By the end of this spring, it'll be 1 million people. I mean, we've gone through a horrible time of trial and testing. You know, I don't want you to get too introspective now. And if I ask you a question, well, how are you doing now um, spiritually versus how were you doing 18 months ago? I think that a lot of times those are difficult uh, questions to answer. Like the answers are opaque, but probably it's not a bad idea to do some type of assessment. Like as I, as you, as the church has gone through this trial, like how have we done? <laughs> um, what's it been like for you? That's actually an important question to just ask any human being um, in the course of like er everyday life uh, together. Like how, how has it been for you? We can look back over the last year. We see how we responded to the trials. Some of us drank. Like, we drank way too much. Some of us, like, we, we were seriously into over-shopping. Some of us, like, hunkered down. Some of us became more, more tribalized, more polarized. Um, some of us became more spiritually healthy. <sighs> Heidelberg Catechism 127 is... Uh, is an old way of breaking down this sixth petition. And I wish I had a place to like, put it up on the screen for you, because it's going to be harder to follow as I read it. But this was a, a bunch of Christians you know, 500 years ago who were basically saying, what does this petition mean? 
What are we really asking God when we say, lead us not to temptation, try to follow? It's, it's this. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in the spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Look it up, 127 Heidelberg. Um, it, it's, it's so golden. What we are saying, what's implied in that petition is we are weak. <laughs> We are weak. Um, there was a psychology experiment that was done years back. Uh, they looked at two focus groups of four former cigarette smokers. Group A, they called the lions. Group B, they called the kittens. And as the names would suggest, the lions were the people who thought that uh, they had kicked the habit. They wouldn't smoke again. The kittens were those who... We're uh, you know, teetering on the edge and kind of uh, struggling not to go back to their nicotine habit. And so what they did in this experiment is they showed both groups a movie that made the allure of cigarette smoking just nearly irresistible. And then they said, well, we're just going to step out of the room for a second. And uh, you've got 30 minutes. And they just put a, a pack of <laughs> cigarettes in the middle of the table. And they watch and see what happens. Now, of those two groups, the lions or the kittens, who do you think... Uh, was the you know most likely to, to take a puff? It was it was the lions, of course. And what we're saying to God is, don't lead me into te into testing and trial because I'm a kid, Lord. Um, I'm like a, a deaf, dumb, blind, disabled kid. You know, use whatever metaphor you want, but like I am, I am so weak. You know, as the more I thought about that, really all we're doing is vocalizing the very first beatitude. And that's something, as I, I've listened to Charles, I like literally have listened to probably 200 Charles sermons through the years. And one of the things that he really does a great job of is, is getting the idea out that like, we are weak, we are messed up, we're broken, we're people who don't have it all together, like, we're desperately in need of, of grace. Like, has he, do you feel like he's enculturated that in this church? Have you heard that before? Have you heard that message before? You have. Yeah, so many times. And really, all you were doing is, you were just taking the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Like, who know that? Who know their own you know, spiritual neediness? <laughs> Um, and, you know, and that's what's actually being enshrined here in the sixth petition. Like, Lord, I am so weak in myself and I can't even stand for a moment. And so please give me your strength and uphold me. That's one of the things that we are saying. Now, moving on, the second line of the sixth petition modifies the first. We say, Lord, please don't take me into trial because I don't feel like I'm ready for trial. But if you do, then what? Then Deliver me. Deliver me from evil and from the evil one, from the world, the flesh, and the devil, the triumvirate of evil. And what I want to do in conclusion is just give a, like a few different ways that the Lord does indeed deliver us from evil. I mean, he, could, he, he, he delivers us in, in tons of different ways. But to boil it down, 
Here's four for you to remember and to take, uh, to take to heart. Number one, for lack of a better word, the escape hatch. He provides an escape hatch. Um, whenever we talk about temptation, it's very important that we go back to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Uh, you may have even memorized this verse earlier on as you were a young Christian. He writes that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, an escape hatch, so that you can endure it. The, the encouragement is twofold. The commonality of temptation and the escape hatch. Like one of the things Paul assures us is that no matter how dark, foolish, and destructive are the things that enter into our hearts and our minds, and, and no matter how like, twisted are our corrupted desires, none of that is unique to us. Like not a single one of those temptations is unique to you or me. Like we have all experienced the same ones. There's a commonality that every that every Christian has had to go through something similar. We're to tell ourselves that. And then number two, he assures us that no matter how enticing that sin might be, in whatever whatever form it presents itself, escape is always possible. Now I've looked at that passage again and again to see if like I'm quoting to you a false promise. Like maybe there's there's a, a a loophole here where maybe sometimes escape is... No, I mean, really. He is saying escape is always possible. Like somehow, some way, God has provided us in those moments of temptation an escape hatch. And that's something that we ought to be looking for. Um, there, is, there is an escape hatch. And what happens, I think, is in our cynicism and our repeated defeats when we go down with sin again and again... We may believe that our sinning is just inevitable. We may think that, you know, medicating with porn or overeating or compulsive behaviors are inevitable. But it, that's not what he says. God really will provide a way out somewhere. I don't know where, but you need to be looking for where. Because he does. So that's number one. Number two, the second way that he might deliver us is, is just... There is something wonderful about being strengthened in, in prayer. Um, there's a, there was an old instruction manual that was dated back to the first century of the church, like 70 AD. It's called the Didache. It was written to new Jewish converts to Christianity, explaining to them the faith and helping them you know, walk uh, in the way of Jesus. It's really quite interesting to read because... You get like one of the earliest pictures of Christianity. I mean, it's, it's right at the same time that the New Testament is being written. And there's a section on the Lord's Prayer there. And at the end of that section, it says, it has just really simple words. It says, pray this, pray this prayer three times a day. As in, like, pray the Lord's Prayer probably in the morning, in the noon, in noon and night. And what they were doing is they were drawing upon a, a frequent Jewish custom of like set just prescribed prayer times, fixed regular hours of prayer, you know, at six in the morning, nine in the morning, then at noon, then at three. It's the same practice that occurs today in Orthodox monasteries, a practice that man, probably most of us don't actually engage in, do we? Pray this three times a day. And I think that that is one of the ways that God delivers us. If, 
If you ever really, really talk to God in a given moment, that has a way of like shaking you to your senses, does it not? It really does. It has a way to just, it's like that blast of cold water on our face. And they said, you should do this at least three times a day. Um, I know that Charles has probably talked to you a lot about the topic of cultivating like healthy life rhythms. Um, you know, the typical cell phone user touches his or her cell phone 2,617 times every day. And I figure I do at least that. <laughs> you know, but that's a life rhythm, isn't it? You know, there are other life rhythms that we can cultivate. Uh, and one of the um, cool things we have up in Phoenix is this thing called Surge School, which is a gathering of a bunch of like-minded churches on how to do spiritual formation. They came up with this acrostic that is actually pretty good. It's BLESS, B-L-E-S-S. And it stands for blessing. That's the first. Find a way to be a tangible blessing in, in the world today. L, listen. Listen to other people's stories. Make that part of your life rhythm. E, eat. I know you guys talk a lot about the importance of the shared meal, the shared table together. S is... Uh-oh. <laughs> what is it? Can anybody bail me out here? Speak! <laughs> right? Speak, speak. I mean, the, the power of words, just edifying words, is... Is, is nearly unspeakable. And then the final S is Sabbath, you know, creating you know, a rhythm of rest. And, um, and whatever we could add to that, you know, the rhythm of you know, set prayer times. I, I really think, I'm, I'm of the opinion that utilizing the Lord's Prayer and maybe talking more about it, like it's, a, it's an untapped spiritual gold mine for, for uh, you know, Christian formation today. Number three, uh, the wisdom and companionship of brothers and sisters. There's an additional aspect that deliver us from the evil one that we can focus on here. God sometimes provides escape hatch, and He always provides escape hatch. Um, he sometimes delivers us through prayer, um, but sometimes He gives us other brothers and sisters that help us navigate the, the difficulty that we are going through, and it's those are the ones who show us how to escape. I pastored for 20 years up in Boise, Idaho, and I've met so many Christians who, if they have a sin that they, they keep fighting with, they double down on, like, I'll just pray harder, or, or I'll read my Bible more, and I'll pray harder, read my Bible more, and I'll just kind of keep it, it with myself, and how often does that work? It doesn't. It, it doesn't work very often at all. There was an older brother, his name was Cliff Chambers. Really interesting guy. I arrived in Boise, and Cliff Chambers was in his 70s. He was a pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates back like in the 1940s. That was back in the day when a pitcher would like throw a nine innings. He would have one day of rest, and then he'd come back out, and he'd pitch another you know, nine innings. Um, Cliff Chambers ended up throwing a no-hitter in like 1944. And to tell you how different baseball was back then... They traded him a month later. <laughs> and he had like a three-point-something ERA. Cliff Chambers was an alcoholic. He came to faith in Jesus Christ um, after just a long bout of alcoholism. And his story, he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, Brad, when I met Jesus, I never wanted to drink again. You know, I, just, you know, I never had a taste for alcohol again. He went, he went completely cold turkey. 
What I found in 20 years of pastoring is for every one Cliff Chambers, there's 99 of the rest of us, right? Like, it, it rarely happens that way. You may think that the Holy Spirit, just like inside of you, is just going to push you over the top on your own. But what if the Holy Spirit is going to, the Spirit is He's given to, to, the, to, the, to all of us, you know, through brothers and sisters, it's what's going to be the thing that delivers you. Um, so much more I can say, but I'll go to the fourth and final one. The greatest deliverance, um, the greatest deliverance I want to illustrate with the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if Charles bludgeons you with Lord of the Rings references uh, regularly. He does. He does. I bet he does. Like, I, that's kind of a PCA thing, isn't it? <laughs> I want you to take for a moment and consider how the Lord of the Rings story ends on the slopes of Mount Doom. Frodo, I'm going to read this to you. Frodo has carried the ring of power across Middle-earth, through the borders of and into the very heart of Mordor. And Sam has been his constant companion, sacrificing his strength to carry Frodo when Frodo could no longer do it under his power. But picture the final scene as the two heroes have finally made it to the ledge of the volcano and the, the volcanic chamber. Now there we, here we are. Good has triumphed over evil. All Frodo has to do is toss the ring into the lava. And what Tolkien at that moment wants us to remember is that the exact same scenario had happened previously. Isildur, the king of Gondor, um, had cut the ring from Sauron's finger and he had taken it to that very spot that Frodo, Frodo is now standing. All Isildur needed to do was toss the ring into the lava. And did he? No, he failed. The ring was too powerful and it corrupted his weakness. And so there's an obvious parallel that Tolkien is drawing in having Frodo stand in that same, same spot, same location, thousands of years later. And you know what? If we were watching a Disney movie, we know how it would go. Frodo would, he would take the ring um, and he'd throw it in. You know, that's... That 99% of, of all authors would have the hero conquer the temptation and toss the ring into the lava. But that's not what happens, <laughs> is it? Frodo fails. And he succumbs to the same fate that fell upon the silver. Very significant, because all through the books, hobbits were being shown to be like, they were stronger than men. Hobbits are stronger than mankind. Only at the key moment of the book, Hobbits are not stronger than men. Hobbits and men are all the same. Hobbits are weak too. And yet the story does not end with Frodo's failure. At the very moment Frodo gives in to evil and puts the ring on his finger to vanish and take it away for himself and probably to become another dark lord himself, Gollum you know, pounces out of the shadows. And in a throwback to how Isildur you know, cut the ring off of Sauron's finger, Gollum bites off Frodo's finger, he takes the ring for himself, and in the process, as they're you know, struggling for control of the ring there on the ledge of the volcanic chamber, Gollum falls into the lava, and the ring is, is destroyed. What's the point of all that? Evil is conquered because evil destroys itself. Like, that's where the, the entire epic is leading to. Evil is conquered because Evil destroys itself. When we pray sometimes, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When I pray that, I increasingly pray like, Lord, let 
Whatever it is, whatever evil is assailing me or the church or our society, like, let that evil die of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Like, let it lop off its own head. Let it kill itself. Like, if I am too weak at that moment to overcome, if we are too weak in that moment, then deliver us from evil by letting evil destroy itself. Just as it happened on the cross. Because that is the cross. In conclusion, as we look in our past, we need forgiveness. Uh, as we look at our present, we need sustenance. As we look to our future, we need protection from all that would threaten to harm us. And one of the cool things about the Lord's Prayer, all the verbs are written in the imperative language, is like command. So it's not, it's, Lord, hallow your name. Like, we're, we're almost commanding him. Look, Lord, forgive us our transgressions. Like, we boldly are asking God to do what only he can do. And the wonderful things about the Lord's Prayer that I've come to see is the way he answers all of it. He answers it you know, by giving us Jesus. Like Jesus Christ is the answer to every petition in the Lord's Prayer. Father, your name be hallowed. And Jesus shows up, the perfect embodiment of the holiness of God and the love of God. Like the only man who ever walked the earth that treated God's name as perfectly holy. Your kingdom come and it arrives with the king who came not to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life for the least of these your will be done, and it's done perfectly in Jesus, who demonstrates what a commitment to obedience and generous compassion looks like in a human being. Um, give us his daily bread, and he gives us you know, the bread of life and his son, who alone satisfies the ravenous hunger of the human soul. Forgive us our debts. Who would have ever imagined they would be forgiven through the murder, the murder? of the Son of God, and deliver us from the evil one, because on the cross, he triumphed over, over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He triumphed and defeated them, and soon they will be conquered eternally. And so I think that's the last thing I want you to remember, is when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, you're ultimately praying that the Father would give us all Jesus. Amen. Amen.